HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Barbara Fairchild, a freelance food and travel writer, well-known as the former editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit magazine. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Barbara about the future of food magazines and food writing, and we'll hear Barbara's Julia moment. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. A theme of Julia's influence we've come back to many times on this podcast is the importance of professional food writing. Julia pretty much stumbled into becoming a food writer. Her first interest was in food, eating it to be precise, and then cooking, which led to writing, which turned out Julia had quite the knack for. Once Julia arrived at her profession, she took it seriously. Many others did not. Home cooking and writing about it was generally still viewed as hobbyist or in the 1960s for housewives, and not the sexy profession that the sad loss of Anthony Bourdain last week has made top of mind. As Julia's career grew, writing about food well became extremely important to her. Beyond the care she put into her own work, she also believed that it was very important that food writing should be viewed by the general public as equal to any other form of published work. One, shall we say beneficiary, torch carrier, these values is certainly Barbara Fairchild, 
who spent more than three decades at Bon Appetit magazine, rising through the ranks to eventually lead the charge. For decades, Bon Appetit was the food magazine for home crooks across the country and the major publisher of the most current recipes. You can still mine Epicurious.com for many of those gems. Given her tenure there, Barbara may actually have outpaced Julia in the number of top chefs met, top restaurants she's eaten at. That's all to say her perspective on the food world is vast. At the foundation, we've continued Julia's focus on the importance of food writing, notably in looking for ways to advance food writing as a profession. That's all happened as the publishing landscape has gone through radical changes in the wake of this little invention called the internet. A wave Barbara Fairchild is very familiar with writing, and I can use that analogy, she's from LA. With all that being said, we decided to launch a multi-part series on the state of the food magazine. It seemed only fitting that we'd start by talking to Barbara about what's been, what's happening now, and what's to come. Welcome to the podcast, Barbara. Thank you so much, Todd. I'm really happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. So let's dive right in and talk about where we are kind of arrived at this moment in food magazine publishing after what's been, I think, to say the least, a decade of tumultuous change. So how would you characterize the current state of the the world amongst food publications, notably print magazines? Well, I think the ones that are devoted strictly to food, such as my former publication, Bon Appetit, and Food and Wine, uh, certainly also in the category Sever, and a number of niche magazines, and we can throw some of the what we used to call the women's magazines into that. I think definitely we're seeing uh, a period of consolidation, of reduction, and still of the big publishing houses trying to figure it out, even as some of those themselves undergo uh, consolidation and purchase by larger companies that aren't necessarily publication uh, or publishing companies. By consolidation, I mean the fact that uh, all of the top three, I would, what I call the top three, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, and Sever, have either reduced their uh, frequency. They all have reduced their frequency since I was still involved in a monthly uh, publication. And in the case of uh, food and wine, they have moved out of New York. And in the case of Sever, they've been severely reduced to four times a year. So I don't really know, as far as the consolidation is concerned, do we keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller? And I hate to be a pessimist, but I think that the future of food writing really is not in print publications. Well, I'm glad you said that because that, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about with you today, again, is about the future. But I'm curious what you mean, because you, you're speaking as a, a veteran of magazine publishing, and we have a, you know, a broad consumer audience. And I don't even know when you – consolidation makes sense in terms of the general term. But the, my first question is, well, like, well why? What's, why are they consolidating? Well, staff – they're reducing their staff. You know, it really goes down to the bottom line, and I – say this when I speak in front of student groups and, and various groups of, of journalists, is that basically, as much as we all love this category, and we love to eat, and we love to cook, and we love to talk about food, all of these entities are basically a business, and businesses have to make money. And as far as the print publications are concerned, they see more and more of their advertising dollars migrating to the online world, and as a result, you now have Bon Appetit 10 times a year, you have food and wine 
10, probably the rumor is going to eight times a year, and as I said, several to four times a year. And you have a lot of niche publications that come and go. They're very expensive. They don't take advertising. They're, by and large, quite interesting, but you never know whether there's going to be a second issue or a fourth issue. I think Lucky Peach was a very good example of an attempt to do something like this. But again, when push came to shove, there just wasn't the money to sustain it. So it's all about the advertising dollars migrating away from print onto online, onto social media, and onto television. So that's really it. The bottom line is the bottom line. So uh, having worked on many sides of that, although not specifically in publishing, I'm curious, do you think it's the tail wagging the dog in the sense that the ad dollar started migrating before consumer behavior changed? Or do you think that, because I feel like when you think about people's interest and in, in desire to read magazines, that doesn't seem to have changed that dramatically, or maybe it has. Is it, Are the ad dollars reflecting consumer behavior, or in a strange way, have they been, been uh, directing it? Well, I think what's happening is that the ad dollars are trying to find where the audience is. And what's interesting is that the audience is all over the place. It depends upon the age that you're trying to reach. It depends upon if you're trying to reach someone who cooks as opposed to someone who goes to restaurants all the time. I think that the audience has become so diverse that it's hard. It's kind of like, you know, trying to put your finger in the in the dam that's breaking that you, you know, you put your advertising dollars here and all of a sudden there it's somewhere else that everybody's migrating to. Uh, here's a great example. Last night I was scrolling through my phone for something and, uh, up popped a thing on from Food 52, I don't remember if it was on Facebook or on my regular feed or where it was, about how to make a lemon tart. And it was about a minute long, complete with, you know, visual instructions. And I just sat on my couch and I thought, wow, this is where we are right now. One minute on my phone, how to make a lemon tart that probably tastes delicious based on what I was seeing for the <laughs> recipe. Well, I actually, that's a really great point, which I think might zero in on the confusion where people think, well, I'm still interested. Why are these magazines folding? Or I'm still a subscriber, or I still prefer to consume it in this form. Or, you know, I have one magazine that is not a food magazine that I've had been a charter subscriber of, and I can get it on my iPad, but I don't enjoy it in the same way. I don't pay as much attention to it. But do you think that it's actually, it's not necessarily consumer disinterest in the product, but it's this media fragmentation that has just distracted and fragmented the audience so much that print was one of the first ones who couldn't survive that change. Well, I think part of the problem with print is this, the problem that it's always had, which is the the lag time between putting a story into a magazine and the time that the magazine comes out. And, you know, these days... What happens in our world is so immediate that people of all ages now expect to be informed instantly. And magazines and print can't possibly keep up or keep current with a four to six month lag time. So people who are still loyal to that magazine might be more interested in going to the online entity of that magazine rather than waiting four to six months uh, for the for the quote unquote news, I think certainly when we see uh, how the restaurant culture has taken over, 
that's definitely uh, a point for that because restaurant news is so immediate and so instantaneous. What's here today is gone tomorrow. That the only way you can keep up is to be looking at something like Eater or a local newspaper's online entity or the local newspaper, uh, if there still is one, which is a whole other topic. But I think a lot (laughs) of it is also migrating to a more local point of view. And then again, you have Eater, which has become quite the player lately, running longer-form stories in what they call their national edition. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because my hypothesis going into this conversation was that, oh, it's all going to be in terms of print about niche, and that, you know, Lucky Peach maybe is not the most representative example. It had a lot of different nuances, and I was certainly sorry to see it go. It was an amazing um, change. But is that, do you think that's also a red herring, that niche because of these other things we've discussed, isn't inherently the future of print either. And by niche, I mean magazines a bit like Savor that don't focus on breaking news or latest restaurants, but do more in-depth feature or, or investigative stories. Well, I think there'll always be an audience for that, but I don't necessarily feel that particularly the younger generations need to see that in a in a print paper publication. Uh, I think that if the information is solid, you just as soon read it uh, online or on your phone or on an iPad or a tablet uh, than you would, which is much more portable, uh, than you would in a print publication. I think what's so interesting is that you have a lot of niche things that come and go, uh, one that seems to you know, still be going fairly strong, as far as I can tell, is a, is a magazine called Cherry Bomb, which is written uh, for women in a very modern way and uh, is very impressive in its format and its and its very modern look. And they have a podcast on this network as well. Uh, yes, exactly. So I think that's one that seems to be hanging in there, and I would call that a niche publication. Uh, I also still really like um, the edible publications. Again, they're not only niche, going back to that word local, they're all very local. I don't know what kind of money they make, but they're fun to go through, especially when you're traveling. Uh, well, and they, they you know, to me, more... A lot of farmer's markets and, and restaurants and things like that to just see what's going on in the local area. So again, that would be a... a paper publication that you might pick up every once in a while. But as far as, as keeping trying to keep track of this crazy expanded world of food on a daily basis, for me personally, it's all about being online. Yeah, no, and I think what's interesting about the example about Eater, it, it, sorry, about Edible, is that Edible kind of started in the digital age, and they, they did a kind of very deliberate two-pronged play, or even three-pronged, if you will, between local, online, and print. So there's a interrelationship that's baked into their existence. Um, exactly, I, and I have to say that these days for reading about food in print publications— you find a lot of great food stories of all types, you know, restaurants, the politics of food, what I call the politics of food, chef profiles, uh, those kinds of things in, in magazines that we don't call, quote-unquote, food magazines. I think there's excellent food writing in The New Yorker 
I think that the Atlantic uh, does a great job. Cor- Corby Cummer has always done a really great job covering food in the Atlantic. And, of course, for print, as far as a uh, weekly uh, basis, I think you still have a lot of really solid newspaper food sections, although, of course, that's another print entity that's undergoing a lot of turmoil. I think the New York Times food sections on Wednesday, the LA Times is, you know, hanging in there, still trying to to do it. Boston, and again, the fact that's so interesting to me, Todd, is that when we talk about quote-unquote food writing these days, a lot of times we're not talking about writing that has recipes in it at all anymore. Mm. Well, I was thinking about the old maxim that content is king, and that's kind of seems to be what you're talking about, is that the content matters a lot. The delivery mechanism is less in control or controlled by the publisher or even by the advertiser, and that that's really the focus. So maybe we'll shift to what you think about the future. I mean, you've sort of started to go there, and certainly it sounds like your bias would be that even Bon Appetit or Food and Wine or Savoir's in print days may still be numbered. So where are we going? Well, I think what's interesting is the type of magazine called Bon Appetit that we did when I was on the staff uh, doesn't really exist anymore because part of our quote-unquote selling point to the advertisers was the fact that we had the most recipes. And now I think recipes are less and less important. If If you thumb through the magazines these days, of course there are recipe stories, but there are fewer recipes in an issue, and they're all of a certain type. You don't necessarily get, uh, and this was something that we were struggling with when we were still on board, was the fact that people's time in the kitchen was more and more limited, and occasionally they would do the types of things we called a project, like make baguettes or, uh, you know, make paella or or take a day to do something. But Mm. that was few and far between. And how do we devote pages to that when what we really know is what people want are quick, sophisticated cooking, at least when when we were on board at Bon Appetit, that that's what we were there to serve our the majority of our readership. So it was definitely already starting to change. It was definitely getting more and more of a challenge to figure it out. Again, we had this lag time problem of the four to six months. And at the time, uh, not a solid presence online. I think that part of of all three of the food magazines have, have definitely been boosted in the last five years if not three years, because I think they all see the way that that's migrating. And perhaps to go back to the business as business uh, theory of mine, that they see their own advertising sales staffs saying, our advertisers want to be online where you're doing Mm -hmm. videos and where people are watching as opposed to where people are, quote unquote, reading. Yeah, no, it's taken a while for internet advertising in terms of its revenue value to catch up with its promise, which always meant for anyone trying to reallocate resources to that dependent on old ad dollars at the very beginning, it was very hard to justify. And now that's finally sort of sorting itself out. And and to go back to that, that lemon tart recipe last night that I was watching on my phone, 
I, and knowing that I was going to be talking to you, I thought to myself, wow, I wonder what Julia would have thought of this because I'm sitting and watching this and I'm thinking, wow, you put the lemon in the blender, you don't even have to, you know, you just take the seeds out, you chop it up, you throw in the eggs, you throw in this, and it, and it, you just pour it into the, the pie shell that they've already showed you how to make. And I thought, wow, this is really an incredible sounding thing. And it made me want to go and make it. And goodness knows I've had enough lemon tarts in my lifetime. But I thought, wow, this sounds fun. Well, that, that, let, let's stick with that for a second, because um, I know you knew Julia fairly well. And I knew her relatively well. And she was pretty skeptical of the internet, but I think it was for different reasons. It felt to her at the very early days as like kind of a free-for-all where things, and particularly copyrights and intellectual property, were not protected. But I think if, if someone she trusted like you showed her something like that and she saw the potential, she would have loved it. But there was that kind of dichotomy. I don't know if you ever had a conversation with her about that. Well, I think what, what would hurt her focus, of course, was getting people to in their kitchens to cook and know the joys of being able to create something that tasted delicious. She wasn't necessarily about uh, a lot of steps or how difficult it was. And indeed, in her own cookbook collection, you can see her own evolution as a cook trying to also pinpoint in the time that she was active how people's time in the kitchen and their tastes were changing from mastering the art all the way down to uh, the last books that she did with chefs and, and you know, the way to cook and, and cook, the very cooking at home in a much more modern way. I think she was very aware. And I think what's interesting, you know, it would be fun to, you know, go through one of these great exercises. If Julia could come back for a day <laughs> and we could show her everything that's happening, I think she would be both horrified and excited. <laughs> Yes, I always feel that about the founding fathers of America. They would be pleased about the checks and balance and overwhelmed with the change. Right. So I think, you know, there are a lot of good things. It, it just depends upon whether you are looking for recipes, which in my opinion, I think fewer and fewer people are. I think we have really turned a tide in America and become a restaurant culture more than a cooking culture. And I think that's also part of the problem or the situation with magazines that have recipes and talk about cooking. Wow, you've just given the foundation's mandate um, even more importance in terms of if that's your perspective, then we have a lot more work to do to keep people cooking. But it, but I can't argue with you. I think there's a lot more interest in sort of watching and hearing about it and learning about it and not as much growth as that in, in terms of doing it. So we talked about the future a little bit, and maybe I'll just pivot before we go to break on which publications you think are doing it well, at least right now, are going to survive into the future. You mentioned Eater and Eater kind of going from local to national. Is that is that one that you really think is is getting it right? Well, it's one that I follow for a lot of different cities because I still travel a lot and I use it for what restaurants are currently hot, you know, that they have the hot list and things like that. But I've been increasingly interested in the Eater National that comes out uh, that has much longer form writing by some very well-known names in our business and some newer names that are doing excellent work. So I'm finding a lot on Eater. As I said, I'm finding a lot in the New Yorker uh, that is very much, you know, doesn't have anything to do with recipes. Everything that I'm talking about is really non-recipe oriented. It's more news oriented with restaurants and what I call the politics of food, 
uh, and food production and the kinds of things that we're, you know, all concerned about, too. But as far as the recipe aspect is concerned, I think that there's a certain part of the population, let's say that they are 45 and over, who like to cook, and maybe they feel like they have enough recipes, (laughs) and they don't need to have any more recipes, or they think between the cookbooks that they already have and the the things that are online that are available, that they don't necessarily need a magazine with recipes anymore. So I think that's part of it. Uh, Besides finding our recipes at Epicurious, as you mentioned at the beginning of the uh, podcast, we had three magnificent, in my humble opinion, uh, cookbooks that we did uh, during my time at the magazine, uh, all in uh, 2006, 2008, and 2010, uh, the original Bon Appetit 50th Anniversary Cookbook, the Fast Easy Fresh Book, and the Desserts Book. I mean, between those three books, you have about at least about 3,000 recipes. And, you know, do you really need any more than that? Probably not. (laughs) So, again, if you have several of Julia's books, a lot of different cookbooks, uh, a recipe clipping resource of your own, I think now you're going online and you're reading about restaurants and about the food culture and following chefs and things like that and probably watching television and maybe even... You know, we haven't even touched on social media, where on Facebook Live, anybody can be live streaming from, you know, a market in Rome or a market in Sicily or, uh, you know, a market in Reykjavik. It's it's really a revolution. Wow. Okay. A lot of food for thought. We might have to have you back on to uh, discuss that further. <laughs> we so we're going to take a quick break. On uh, social media, probably. Yes. Yes. I didn't, it didn't block off enough for that. Well, well that'll be part two. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to get Barbara's sage advice, given all of that landscape shifting on becoming a food writer in uh, today's complex media landscape, as she just detailed. We'll be right back. have to admit, quinoa has always left me cold. But I'd found a summary recipe in actor Stanley Tucci's cookbook, The Tucci Table. Coincidentally, Tucci played Paul Child in the movie Julie and Julia. Using Bob's Red Mill organic whole grain quinoa was a revelation. Mixing it with olive oil and lemon juice, as well as feta, pomegranates, and pistachios produced a rich and flavorful main course salad. Delicious. Visit bobsbreadmill.com today. Use the discount code JULIA25, all one word in all caps, for valuable savings and more recipe suggestions for Bob's Red Mill Quinoa. All right, we're going to talk more specifically about being a food writer in this changed world that Barbara's just been talking about, which I've just learned is a non-recipe world, at least in terms of food media in publications. And But I, I know that despite all that, we did discuss content still being king, no matter where it's delivered. So let, let's talk a little bit more about being a food writer. So I, I read that you once 
responded that Julia Child and Irma Rombauer are the most important cookbook writers of the last 50 years. So what? why did you say that? What makes for a great food writer? How does one spot one? Well, that was in the context, again, of recipe writing and cookbooks. And if you are someone who wants to do that kind of writing, where you have recipes that you want to communicate to an audience, I think that what we've seen the most success on uh, in the last, again, five to ten years, are people who start out online and have, a, you know, a niche or quote-unquote brand, which is, you know, the, the word of the, of the moment, and create something online that a book publisher might take note of and then make a book out of. Uh, the Pioneer Woman is a good example. Uh, Food 52 is a good example. Uh, I think that you create a persona uh, Smitten Kitchen is, a, is another one from out of, uh, out of Brooklyn or out of New York. So I think that uh, that's one way to do it. Um, I could jokingly say it depends upon whether or not you want to be paid <laughs> uh, because food writing is a real tough gig these days, like a lot of things are. Uh, I think if you want to go into the world of food magazines, the best way to do that would be to start a magazine and probably be living in New York. There isn't much more, you know, there are things here and there uh, along the way. But if you want to be a, a recipe writer, I think that's a whole different world these days than being a, a, a writer of features or a writer about restaurants. You know, to say how to be a good food writer is so much more complicated or more diverse and complex than it was 10, 20 years ago. Well, I'm certainly struck by some of the early examples you gave, which I don't disagree with at all, but being a, a brand and having a kind of shtick, if you will, online is not the same thing as being a good writer. And in fact, without naming any names, many of those people who established these brands and big followings need a lot of help writing a cookbook. And they're two different things, and it used to be very related to journalism. So do you think if, if you're looking to – if you enjoy writing or want to be a writer first and foremost and food is your passion, do, do you think it's still a journalism route that is, is key and essential? Or do you think you can teach yourself food writing, writing from just blogging up a storm? Well, I think you can – I don't think you can teach yourself. You have to be a good writer. I think good writers are good writers no matter what they're writing about. When you think about in you know our generation, some of the people who became great food writers did not start out as food writers. I mean, Alan Richmond wrote about sports, and uh, he's still writing for the New York Times occasionally now. Uh, he just did a, a big feature story on LeBernadin that was really great. So I think that it... it Good writing is what I'm finding is hard to find. And mm -hmm. I think if you have a passion for food on top of that, so much the better. But I think these days, if I were trying to direct someone into a, a, a food writing career, which I am occasionally asked to do with, by young people who are friends of, of, friends of mine or, or children of friends of mine, that good writing really shines through no matter what you're writing about. And it, to put the food template on top of that uh, can only strengthen what you do. Now, how to find a job is really the difficult part because, as I said, 
magazine and newspaper jobs are dwindling, and there has to be a certain amount of, uh, you know, proactiveness on your part, whether you have your own blog in addition to having, you know, a day job (laughs) that also is writing. And that's a lot of the paths uh, that some of these younger people are doing is finding jobs that involve writing, not necessarily food, and then at night going home and writing about food or going out to dinner and, you know, Instagramming and captioning and, and trying to get the attention of people like that. So it's a very, I think, a much much harder way to try to earn a living. And there was a, an excellent uh, article in the Columbia Journalism Review uh, just in this issue about a young person who was, a young woman who was trying to find a job, and she just got so burned out that she's really rethinking her entire uh, her entire career path. And it's very, uh, it's a very bleak assessment of where we're going. Yeah, I, w- I was going to ask you about that bleak assessment in one second. But I also wanted to say it's it's kind of an interesting, again, dichotomy between the bar of entry has been lowered dramatically. You want to be a food writer? Start a blog. It's a legitimate way. And in theory, right, as you were saying, anyone with natural talent, it's going to bubble up. I think in reality, nothing bubbles up. The people who bubble up are the people who put the most time and energy into promoting and social media-lizing their thing and they deserve credit for that because they're they're working it it's very rare that anything happens truly by accident or truly virally and my argument would be anything goes by viral there's except maybe certain kitten videos there's a certain effort behind the from the creator in promoting it but at the same time um it's really i mean i i honestly shudder with thinking about are we doomed in food writing to the rest of what's going to be written our top 10 list or things that are plagued with errors that are not fact-checked because someone is just cutting and pasting something they found in the internet and i've been finding this problem now with people who are getting published or working for you know major established publications so it feels like we've also got this cocktail for massive amounts of disinformation well i think what's you hit it right on the head with the fact that there is no fact-checking anymore, and there is no such thing as really spell-check. I mean, you find errors everywhere, not just, I mean, restaurant menus are just horrible and shocking in a lot of places that are super popular. I just sit there and, you know, the editor in me just is mentally correcting spelling and correcting all kinds of errors. I think that you have, you as the consumer have to have a brain and realize what's going on here. And I agree with you. A lot of these people are not that legitimate. They're not great writers, but they are great promoters and of themselves. And that's how they get a following, and the following builds and builds and builds and builds. You see this in not just in food, but in all areas of our culture uh, and all subject matter. So, I think you have to become a discerning consumer and say, well, wait a minute, this isn't making any sense to me, or this isn't right, or I read somewhere else that this is the complete opposite, or really, is that word really spelled like that? I mean, that, that's kind of what you have to do, and, and it's hard work on our part as the consumer to just sort of say, okay, I'm dismissing this person. This can't possibly be right. Uh, What you see now, what I find so interesting when I watch Food Network, uh, the entertainment shows, which they all are entertainment, and I think we could do another podcast on how uh, 
Food Network has turned us away from wanting to get into the kitchen and wanting, uh, you know, and more to go to restaurants and go into our own kitchens. But when you see the judges... <laughs> Unless, of course, you're shows, hosting a competition in your own kitchen. Chef, a lot of them are coming from the online world. And I see them sitting there and I think, really, this is the person who's going to ev- evaluate the taste of this dish or how these ingredients were used or how these crazy ingredients were used. And I think, wow, I mean, I... I know that person, or I, I know of that person, and I think, but this person is a great promoter, and now he or she is on television. It's 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 very um, uh, counterintuitive to what we want. We want experts, and I think that experts are fewer and far between these days. Well, I mean, that's my real fear and our fear at the foundation is that as much as the realities of the changed media landscape and maybe the demise of print publications as printed media, not necessarily as publications or publishers, but they provided two things that there's not really yet a replacement for training. more than two things, training, standards, and kind of actually, I think something that's been discounted by the public is a protection. There was a curation and an editorial process so that you got something that was fact-checked, that was recipe test. And those, those things have all broken down, but those were all really good things. So you know, and with the volume of information coming at consumers, how, how it is, it makes it even harder for consumers to, as you say, have a brain. Well, especially younger people who don't necessarily have the background or uh, the history or know what's right and what's not right, that was something that we were always very aware of to educate people and never assume that anybody knew anything. Uh, I remember being quite interested at a food conference once when one of the large food companies talked about how they have to change all the directions on their boxes of how to make things because nobody knows what the term fold means anymore, that they would say to stir in gently, which, of course, is not folding at all. And I thought, wow, and this was probably, Todd, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, and things were starting to change where people didn't understand the terminology people who wanted to cook. Now, people who want to go to restaurants, I think, understand some of the terminology, but I think what's, what's happening is that there are things that are on restaurant menus that Julia would be shocked that are called certain things that have, are, are, have no resemblance to the classic recipe you know, when people, uh, when I go out with people, I, I sometimes have to chuckle because they'll say to me, well, what is this? We'll be at a, a, a restaurant that maybe has some sort of a French, you know, they're having something like a creme brulee or a pot de creme or something like that and then the dessert menu. And I will say to them, well, traditionally it would be X, Y, Z, but I don't know what this chef is saying. <laughs> well, after we can see what comes to that. the table. It could be anything. I mean, if you order... Uh, something in a restaurant for dessert, and instead of being, uh, let's go back to the lemon tart thing, it comes back, you know, or lemon meringue pie, it comes back and it's a, it, it's completely <laughs> disassembled on the plate, and it's not what you're expecting. So when, you which bodes to you have to be an informed. You have to be an informed diner and actually ask the server. So this, it says it's a lemon tart. How does it come? Does it look like a lemon tart? It's hard. You know, it's getting to be. <laughs> Hard work. 
restaurant goer or 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 a consumer of food publications or food writing because you never know unless you're familiar with that person or you've done a little research on that person, again, with a little bit of hard work, you have to research the person. You don't know if what they're saying is, is accurate or they're putting it through their own lens or, you know, it, it's just really interesting now what comes out is fried chicken <laughs> or lemon meringue pie. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So do you think, are, are, are we doomed? Is this all very exciting? How do, how do you see this all sort of netting itself out? Well, I'm excited about a lot of the writing that I find, again, that I'm reading in publications that aren't necessarily, quote-unquote, food publications. Uh, you have to look for it. Uh, it. It's easier to look for it online because, you know, I used to tell people back in the day, you know, if you want to know what the tone is, you just, you know, go to a newsstand and thumb through the, thumb through the magazines. There are so many, but there aren't that many anymore. And, uh, again, the ones that are there are very niche. You get a lot of magazines now with, you know, a vegan perspective, vegetarian perspective, those kinds of things. We could also do probably a whole show about that. But uh, you have to become familiar with what you like and some of the writers that speak to you as far as the writing is concerned. As far as the viewing on on television uh, or listening to the radio or that kind of thing, Again, you have to go with what you're comfortable with. You know, there's some people who love Guy Fieri. There are some people who hate Guy Fieri. Uh, it just depends upon what you like as the consumer. All right. I'll go on record and say I do like Guy Fieri. I particularly like Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. But I like it because I love seeing how real food is made that isn't like pretentious and also i'm always fascinated by larger scale food production and how you do it so that's what it probably has less to do with guy and more to do with the stories he's bringing bringing forward well that goes back to the local angle that you'd rather go to a place that's not a chain that's you want to know the place where the locals go and we just had a i just had an example of that in my in my own experience we went to uh Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago for a wedding and uh we were out in the in the suburbs more than on the strip at all and i really wanted some mexican food for lunch and so we went on to you know google and said, you know, what are the Mexican restaurants near where we are? And there were two that were part of a well-known chain, and there was one that was local, and we went to the local one, and it was absolutely delicious, and strip mall, great tacos, blah, 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 the whole deal. And that, again, that's how we found a restaurant, by going to Google. And not going do you remember the name? Do you want to give it a shout-out? Not out, going or to a magazine, <laughs> but going to our phones. Do you want to give it a shout out? Do you remember the name of it? Yes, it was called Rivas, R-I-V, like Victor A-S. And it turns out there were there were about five of them in the Vegas area, but not any of them are on the strip. There might have been one on the strip, but all of them are more out where, or I like to say, where the real people live. <laughs> Well, there we go. A free uh, restaurant review and tip in Las Vegas from Barbara. <laughs> I knew we're we gonna were be... in a great place when I ordered the shrimp tacos and I sat down and I could hear them actually making food in the back. And they were great. <laughs> <laughs> Always a good sign. So we're going to take another break and Barbara's going to reveal her Julia moment 
right after. We'll be right back. I'm HRN's Communication Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're exploring the future of eating animals, and we're going beyond typical meat sources. If you look at the length of human history, we've been eating insects a lot longer than we haven't been in the United States and Western Europe. We're looking at unusual ways to purchase meat. People are like, really? Why would I want to buy that out of machine? And we introduce you to Frank Reese, a poultry farmer whose traditional farming methods are featured in a new documentary. I'm a fourth-generation farmer in Kansas, and I focus basically all on standard-bred poultry and have my whole life. He's kind of the last one standing with these rarefied breeds that are so important for if we're going to eat chicken and turkey into the future. He's essential. He's a national treasure. Listen to Meat and 3 this week to better understand the history and the future of meat. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Barbara, what's your Julia Moment? Well, I have so many, but I I wanted to pick out one in particular, which involved the uh, Santa Barbara slash Montecito days. Uh, we used to see Julia a lot when she was out on the West Coast, and certainly when she moved out here full-time, it was really great to have her here and, and go to dinner, both in restaurants and in private homes. And one time, she invited us to come with her to a potluck dinner that some friends of hers were giving in their uh, condo in Montecito. And everyone was supposed to bring a dish, but Julia said we didn't have to, that she was going to handle it. So we went and picked her up at her condo, and she had done an entire uh, steamed Dungeness crab, which she had put on a silver platter. And I got stuck with holding the platter in the back seat while my life partner, Paul, drove us uh, to the drove us to the dinner, which in typical Julia fashion was at a very low-key place. These people were school teachers and, and super nice people, really wonderful. So I managed to navigate holding the Dungeness crab on the silver tray without spilling it on my lap or spilling it on the floor of the car. And as we're getting out, we, we, the condo that we were going to, it had a, a, a kind of a uh, parking lot area for visitors. And we pulled in, there was some construction work going on, and we pulled in and we, and we started to get out of the car. And this construction worker came over to the car, and I was thinking, oh, gosh, maybe we're not supposed to park here, but I don't want to drop this crab, and all, you know, all this stuff is running <laughs> through my head. He's wearing a hard hat. I can still remember. He was wearing a hard hat, dirty jeans and work boots, and a, a really you know, a bright red T-shirt. And he said to Julia, are you Julia Child? And I just kind of stood there in shock and, and really just dumbfounded. And she said, oh, yes, why, yes, I am. And he said, I just want to thank you because I'm using one of your books and I'm teaching myself how to cook, and it's so much better. And I have to tell you, Todd, I almost burst into tears because that really focused for me 
her importance and her influence and all kinds of people to think that, you know, people who read Bon Appetit, of course, knew of her and used her recipes, but here's a guy just working on condos and working on uh, construction who's using her books, too, and really getting a lot out of them. And that, to me, was an, an amazing Julia moment for me. Wow. You, 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 that, yes, I was getting misty there, too. That was, that, it was certainly very well told and distinct. I would say that's the first one of its kind that both included a sort of poetic symbolism as well as a dish in it. No one's actually mentioned a specific dish yet, I think, that they were holding in their lap. So the, did the crab make it into the, the host's um, Okay, good. All right. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, that's our time for today. Thank you very much for joining us, Barbara. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. Let us know what you think about today's show. You can reach us via email or even send us a voice memo to contact at joyachildfoundation.org. If you can follow the foundation on social media, our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. And on Instagram, it's all one word, Julia Child Foundation. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at T Shulkin, T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. And if you want to follow Barbara, notably to see what and where she's eating, she's on Instagram at at Fairchild.Barbara and at Barbara.Fairchild on Facebook. Thanks to WGBH for the Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef. Thanks, as always, to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, David Tadashore. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please remember to give us a review so new listeners can discover the show. And as always, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single upcoming episode, including the next in our series on print magazines. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, and downloads are available soon after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.